0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm enjoying our study in the Old Testament. Here we are, back in 1 Samuel, where we left off. Last week we looked into how Israel had asked for a king, and God gave them a king, Saul. He was a promising young man. He showed humility before Samuel the prophet, he waged war by the power of God's Holy Spirit. He gave glory to God when he was given the victory over the Ammonites, and he didn't take personal revenge on those who had slighted him when he was chosen by God to be king. So, so far, so good. Everything is going well for Israel and their new king. However, you see from this morning's title that in chapters 13 through 15, things take a turn for the worse for King Saul. We see Saul's failures, particularly in chapters 13 and 15, and that's going to be our focus this morning. Now, before we read chapter 13 and dive into God's Word, I want to get your thoughts going along what we can learn from Saul's failures. And here today, we're going to see that Saul's faith in God is tested, in very severe tests, and that God allows us as his children to be tested so that what is in our hearts might be revealed when you think about tests you might think about academic tests when you were younger and you were preparing to take the act or the sat exam you might still remember that stressful day when you took that test for hours and hours and it was designed not to make you a good student but to reveal what kind of student you had been for the last 13 years of your life And so that's the way it is with the tests that God brings into our life as well. The tests aren't so much designed to make us into good Christians, but to reveal whether or not we have learned the spiritual lessons that we should have learned up to this point in our life. God allows tests in our life to reveal the character that is in our hearts. And so you might also think about a stress test. Now, it's very stressful taking the SAT or the ACT. That's why I still remember it. But there's other kinds of tests as well besides academic tests. You might have a stress test on a transportation system. You might have a stress test on a software system, a computer system, to be able to reveal weaknesses in the system, to be able to find out whether or not it has been properly designed and properly constructed to be able to withstand the most severe stress that it is going to encounter during its use. And that's why God allows tests in our life to reveal to us where there is weakness and where we need to be strengthened or to change. So as we come and look into Saul's failures, we're going to see that God puts Saul to the test and that Saul fails these stress tests in his life. The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 13 where we see that Saul commits the hasty sacrifice as we remember from our Sunday school days. So I'm going to start there in verse 1. You read along with me and we'll see how God sets up this test and why Saul fails it. Verse 1 is interesting. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, we'll stop there for a moment because it doesn't make a lot of sense, the way that the scripture text is written here, that Saul lived for one year and then became king. Normally, in scripture, when we're told how long a king lived before he became king, We're told how old he was when he became king. So it doesn't make sense that Saul was one year old when he was made king. We know that he was a grown man at this point from what scripture had said before. And what appears to be the problem here is that the numbers that go along with Saul's reign in chapter 13 verse 1 have been lost. When it comes to the inerrancy of scripture, the doctrine of inerrancy is is that in the original manuscripts the word of God was without error. However, we do not have the original manuscripts, and this is one of the most notorious examples in the Old Testament of where we've lost one of the numbers that was in the original manuscript. Now, perhaps you might be able to make some kind of argument that this verse is not talking about how old Saul was when he became king, but it's referring back to some previous event, and that there was one year, and then he became king after that, and then... After two years of his reign, he then did what's coming up. Perhaps the text could be reconstructed in that sense. But I think, as I look at it, more probable the numbers were lost. And so this is one of those cases where those who like to point out that the Bible is not trustworthy will will come to a verse like this and say, Look, you know, God is supposed to preserve his word, but we don't even have the number of years that Saul lived before he became king and there's a a textual corruption here. Well, what I say to those who would quibble with God's word like that is that you are a fool. You've missed the mountain of evidence for the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture, and you've stumbled upon the pebble that fell off of that mountain. They've missed the mountain of evidence, and they've stumbled on the pebble that fell off of that mountain, and they stumble because they want to stumble. They stumble because God has appointed them to stumble. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word and they have no love of God in their heart and they're just looking for an excuse to reject the Bible as God's word. And God, in his wisdom, and his providence, provides opportunities for the unbeliever to stumble. That's part of his judgment upon the unbeliever. And so don't walk in the path of the unbeliever. Instead, see the mountain of evidence for the reliability, the inspiration, the preservation of God's word, and don't let a little thing like this throw you off. If you stumble upon the pebble, then you will fall headlong into the pit. And that's what those do who mock at God's word. But that aside, let's continue reading the text. Pick it up again in verse 2. So Saul chose three thousand men of Israel. Two thousand were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah at Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews hear." And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul just gathers a small army. He puts his son Jonathan in charge of a third of it. And Jonathan takes initiative. He goes out and strikes this garrison that the Philistines have built within the land of Israel because the Philistines are still ruling over a large part of the land of Israel and so he knows this is going to prompt a response from the Philistines, so he gathers the army back together, and that's where we come to in verse 5. The scripture is setting the stage here for us for this test of Saul's faith and obedience to the Lord. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. That is an insane number of chariots. And 6,000 horsemen. And troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. So the Philistines are saying, we're done with messing around. We're going to get every man that we have to go and finally defeat Saul and his family for this uprising that they think that they can accomplish against our rule over the Israelites. So they came up. "...with troops like the sand on the seashore, and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling." Now, a lot of people aren't following him. A lot of the people are in holes and rocks and tombs, and some people have fled across the Jordan. But the ones who are still with Saul, they're trembling. They look at the size of this army that they're up against, and they think that they are doomed. And so I want you to get the sense of the difficult stress test that the Lord put upon Saul in this instance. He's got a massive army gathered against him. His people have lost courage and fled. And so what do you do? Well, you kind of wish that you'd stayed hidden in the baggage, right? Remember when Saul was appointed king, they couldn't find him, and he was hiding among the baggage? Well, this is the reason why young Saul was hiding among the baggage. He didn't want to have to deal with situations like this. This is a very difficult place to be as a king. And not only that, but you read a little bit later in the chapter, and you find out that the people of Israel at this time in their history did not even have proper weapons of warfare. I want you to come down to verse 16, come down to verse 16 in this chapter. So Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them were staying in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, or the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth-Horan, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, note verse 19. There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for setting the goads. So on that day of the battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But only Saul and Jonathan, his son, had sword and spear. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So not only are they vastly outnumbered, but they also don't have proper weaponry. So you get a sense here early in Saul's kingdom how much the Philistines dominated the Israelites that they even had the power to prevent them from smithing their own weapons and that they had this dominance over Israel that if you wanted the service of a blacksmith you had to go to the Philistines and pay what is recorded in the text. What an interesting detail that God includes there. The price that the Israelites had to pay for sharpening their plowshares and the like by going to the Philistine blacksmiths shows you the historicity of the text and that this is from the time that it was written with details like this. So Saul is being severely tested in a stressful situation and it gets worse. Come back to verse 8. It's important that we understand the context of Saul's failure. It says here in verse 8 that Saul, he, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So, you've got the context, you've got the Philistines and their mighty army, Saul with his small group, and most of them have left him, they don't have proper weapons, and so he's told by Samuel, I'm going to come, and before the battle, I will offer this burnt offering to the Lord, and the Lord will give you victory in battle. And Saul is waiting for Samuel, and he's getting very nervous, because Samuel does not come when he thought he was going to come. And so he says, I'll do it. Now, this doesn't seem like that bad of a sin to people in our culture. I remember when I was at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, I took a class on the Old Testament as literature. And so as we were reading through Samuel together and discussing it with the other students there at UNL, the students thought, well, Samuel's pretty hard on Saul here. It doesn't seem like Saul was really that bad. I mean, he was seeking the Lord's favor, He's trying to fight the Lord's battles. Why is it such a big deal that he offered this sacrifice when Samuel was the one that was supposed to do it? At least we're sacrificing to the Lord and asking the Lord's favor, right? And so the students in the class, they didn't understand why God and Samuel were so upset about this. They thought that Samuel was kind of being a jerk. Well, here's the deal. God is very particular about how he is worshiped. You can go back and remember this from the beginning, during the time of Moses, that when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, brought strange fire before the Lord, on a day of celebration, a day of worship, all the congregation was gathered to honor the Lord, that fire, probably lightning, came forth from the presence of God and burned them to death immediately for not worshiping the way that God had commanded them to worship. And so this is, again, an instance where it doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we don't consider God to be holy. We have no concept of God's holiness. We have no concept of how difficult it is for God to make a way for people who are not holy to enter into God's holy presence without being consumed and destroyed. Since we don't have that concept of God's holiness, when Saul takes upon himself the role of a priest— and offers a sacrifice that God was very specific that only the Levites, only those whom he has appointed to offer the sacrifice are allowed to do it, that this is the same kind of mistake that Nadab and Abihu made. Saul is not treating God as holy. And this is a, an offense that's punishable by death. God has shown in Israel's history that this is a, a punishable offense with death. Now Saul's life is spared. And so... Rather than seeing Samuel as being too harsh, you might say, well, actually Samuel is pretty gracious in his response to Saul breaking the covenant with God and exercising a priestly prerogative that God had forbidden him to exercise. We want to understand the Bible in its context and not in our context, and that's very hard for people to do. That's why it's important to read the scriptures. That's why it's important to meditate upon the scriptures. That's why it's important to know your Old Testament so that you actually know God and not just our 21st century concept of God, which is far from accurate. So, Saul says, you know, the situation was really tough. And you know, Samuel, you're kind of to blame here that you didn't come in the time that was appointed. And so I was just kind of forced. I I forced myself to do what I didn't want to do. And this is the man not owning his sin. This is man making excuses. This is man blaming others. And whenever you see someone do this, they don't admit their fault, but they have to be confronted with their fault. And when they are confronted with their fault, they still don't admit their fault, but they blame shift and they make excuses and they rationalize. This is not repentance. This is not godliness. Saul is failing the test on multiple levels here. He's failed the test of obedience, and now he's failing the test of repentance. He's not exercising genuine repentance either. It's important that we understand the difference between remorse and repentance. And we'll take a closer look at that when we see a second mistake in chapter 15. So that is Saul's first failure, is this hasty sacrifice that he commits here before the battle with the Philistines. Now God is gracious to Saul and first that he spares his life, but secondly, that he still allows Israel to have victory in the battle. And you can read about Israel's victory in the battle in chapter 14 which comes not because of Saul and and his faith, but it comes because of Jonathan. Jonathan becomes the tool that God uses to bring victory to the people of Israel in the battle against the Philistines in chapter 14. But for time's sake, we're going to skip over chapter 14 and just catch the end of it here. When you come to the end of chapter 14, you get a summary statement of Saul's wars as king of Israel. Pick it up in verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. Again, this is God's grace, that God gave the people a king, and God is now showing that just as he was with the judges, he will be with the kings, and that God will give them victory. And what does he require of them? Faithfulness to his covenant, which includes the command for how to offer sacrifices to God. That's a big part of the covenant. Saul did not obey that when he was tested. It's easy to obey God when you're not tested. When you're tested, that's going to show whether or not your heart is really in the right place. That's why God allows for these tests. So, you pick it up there at the end of verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And that then brings us to chapter 15, where we see Saul's second failure as king. Saul's failures boil down to the fact that he did not fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, sometimes Saul looked like he feared the Lord. But when he was tested, that's when he showed that he actually feared man and he didn't fear the Lord. He feared the Philistines. He feared his troops running away from him. That's what caused him to disobey the Lord's command. If he'd feared the Lord, then he would have obeyed God's command. But instead, he feared people. And so also in chapter 15, you're going to see this same fault, that Saul fails to fear the Lord and therefore he fails the test that is before him can't overemphasize the importance of learning the fear of the Lord and not the fear of man. So, chapter 15. We look at how Saul failed when he spared King Agag. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did, to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God has the right to judge. And God has the right to judge who he wants, when he wants, provided that the people are guilty. God will never judge the innocent. God will only judge those who are guilty. And you know what the Bible says? All of us are guilty. And the fact that God has not judged us yet is not a sign that we're not guilty. It's a sign that God can judge who he wants, when he wants. And he chooses not yet to judge us for our sins because he has some gracious purpose, some merciful purpose in mind. But, should God choose to not exercise grace, should God choose to not show mercy, that is the prerogative of the divine justice. And it is the prerogative of the one who has been sinned against. We have not sinned against some impersonal law. We have sinned against the Lord. And as the one who has been sinned against, it is his right to execute judgment whenever he sees fit. He sees fit In 1 Samuel chapter 15, to exercise judgment upon an entire group of people known as the Amalekites. This is a horrid thing to do in the eyes of the humanist. The humanist who sees human flourishing and human happiness as the highest goal in life cannot stomach the God of the Bible because God will destroy entire groups of people which is a violation of the most sacred beliefs of the humanist. This is why Christianity and humanism cannot be mixed. And while Christians have attempted to mix together secular humanism with theistic Christianity, it doesn't work. It's a bad amalgamation. And when people actually open their Bible and start reading it, they start to discover, oh, wait a second, the God of the Bible is a moral monster according to my standards and my beliefs. And they said, well, I can't be a Christian anymore because I can't you know, go along with a God who would do something like this. And it's like, well, okay, at least you finally figured out who the God of the Bible is. You can choose to reject him if you want, but he is who he is. And nothing that anyone says or does can change it. Now, what did the Amalekites do? to Israel, opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Well, that's back in Exodus chapter 17. So put your marker here in 1 Samuel 15 and come back to Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Remember the special place that Israel has in God's plan and program. They are his People, His chosen people. They are precious to God. They are valuable to God. He has redeemed them. He has entered into a covenant with them that is like the covenant between a husband and a wife. And he expects his wife to be faithful to him as he is faithful to her. Now, if you want to get on my bad side, attack my wife. And I will defend my wife against those who seek her harm, rape, murder. I will defend. That's my job as a husband. That's God's job as a husband for his people. He will defend those who seek to harm Israel. And in Exodus chapter 17, we see what the Amalekites did. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So from the beginning, God made his will, his purpose known, that he was going to destroy Amalek. It's written in the time of Moses, passed on to Joshua. Come also to Deuteronomy chapter 25. God keeps his promises, even if they're promises about destruction. We see in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and following, God tells the people, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. So they were cowardly and striking out at the stragglers, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget. Okay, so with that in mind, 1 Samuel 15 gives us some context. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Very clear, very specific instructions. So what happens? Saul is going to fail, as we see. Saul's failures continue here in chapter 15. So, verse 4, Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 100,000 men on foot. So Israel had a big army It's not like they were just 3,000 people. That was just the few that Saul had kept with him at that one point. But if he gathers everybody, he's got 200,000 foot soldiers, which is almost as much as the Philistines, and 10,000 men from Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, "'Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt.' The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So, what a fascinating exchange. I mean, you can read this and really get a master class in remorse versus repentance. Once again, Saul does not confess his sin. He is confronted with his sin, and when he's confronted with his sin, he makes excuses, and he blames other people. He says, you know, I did what I was supposed to do. It's the people who are disobedient and rebellious. And Samuel has just said, you know, the Lord appointed you as king. He didn't appoint the people as king. The Lord gave you the responsibility. You can't shuffle off the responsibility now and say, well, it's the people's fault. Once again, instead of fearing the Lord, Saul fears man. The people want to spare the best? Well, I don't want to upset the people. I want to be in good with the people. I want to give the people what they want. I mean, a king listens to his people, right? So, I fear the people. Instead of obeying God's commands, I kind of obey God's commands. And I tell myself that I am obeying God's commands because I partly obeyed God's commands. Listen to this. Don't forget this. Partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Children, the Bible tells you obey your parents. Partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. It's important to get that in mind. Fathers, your obedience to the Lord can't be partial. It's got to be complete. Mothers, if you say to the Lord, God, I will follow you in anything except for this, then you're not obedient to the Lord. It's the exception. It's where you won't obey that is revealing your heart. Oh yeah, it's easy to obey someone when they're telling you what you want to do anyway. Your parents tell you, hey, go have fun. Okay, no problem. I'm an obedient child. Your parents tell you to do something that you don't want to do, that's going to ruin your plans, and you fuss and you disobey and you drag your feet. That's what reveals your heart, that you are not an obedient child, but you are a disobedient child. It's the same way with us and God. If there's anything that you say to God, God, I'll obey you, I'll follow you anywhere except this then you need to repent. You need a change of heart. Who is Lord of your life? Is it you? You might say Jesus is Lord, but if you say, God, I'm going to do everything you want except for, who's really the Lord? You're setting the terms. You're deciding what the relationship is. Don't fool yourself the way that Saul does. And don't fail the test. God is going to test you. He's going to put you into situations where obeying God is not what you want to do. But I'll tell you this, the song did not get it wrong. To trust and obey is the only way to be happy in Jesus. Whatever it is that you're not willing to obey God in, whatever it is that you're holding out and saying, God, just don't touch this. Don't take this. It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to bless you. It will destroy you. I tell you for your good. I tell myself for my good. Trust God. Obey God. Fear God in everything. And look out for the exceptions. To kill it and put it to death and hand it over to God and to surrender all. Let's do that. Let's be that kind of people. Let's set the example and show one another. Let's create that spirit and bring that spirit with us to church. So that it catches around to other people. And that people come to this church and say, there's a people who are sold out. There's the people who would do whatever God commands them to do, who are holding nothing back, who obey him in every area, whether it's politically correct or not politically correct, who believe his word in the places that agree with society and the places that don't agree with society. Let's not compromise. Let's not fear man. So, Saul fails the test. Now, I have a third part of my sermon prepared on whether or not Saul was a saved man. Opinions will differ. The Bible doesn't say whether Saul is in heaven or not. But we're going to skip that sermon for time's sake, and instead, we're just going to finish where we started. And before we finish, there's two verses that I really want to look at, two things that I think are important in the New Testament to follow up with. And the first is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 9 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. I look forward to preaching the book of 2 Corinthians someday. And these verses will give you some insight into why. Verse 9, Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Just to bring you up to speed here, Paul and the Corinthians have had kind of a rocky relationship. And there's been times where Paul has to go to the Corinthians and say, you're wrong, and this is what you need to do. And there's quite a lot of those things. And so that strained their relationship. And so Paul is building that relationship as much as he can while still loving them and correcting them. And he tells them, in this case, I'm glad that I caused you grief when I confronted you about your sin, not because I want you to be sad, but because it led to your repentance. And he notes this godly grief. And so the relationship, while it was stressed and while it was strained by this correction, there was no loss that was being suffered, but instead the people were gaining a godly repentance. That's what Paul is rejoicing in here in verse 9. And then Paul goes on and explains what godly grief and genuine repentance looks like in verse 10. In contrast to Saul, who did not confess his sin and who did not respond well when he was confronted by the prophet, but instead just gave excuses, Notice what verse 10 says. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So regret and death is what goes along with worldly grief. Don't think that a non-Christian, someone who's not born again, who doesn't trust and obey the Lord, can't experience regret and grief over the things that he or she has done. Everyone has a conscience. We all feel bad about the people that we've hurt and the things that we've done wrong. That's not the same thing as a godly repentance. Don't mistake that fleshly natural grief and regret with genuine godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, godly grief produces repentance. Key word there, repentance. Let's continue. Verse 11. So there was a situation in the church where someone had done wrong and someone had been wrong and the church wasn't dealing with it properly. And so Paul has to go in and confront them on not dealing with this situation properly. And they get this godly sorrow. They get this godly repentance. Like, yeah, we've been handling this wrong. We need to do this right. And so they had fear of God. They had zeal to do what was God's will. And they went about setting things right and getting back to obedience to the Lord. That's what we need to do. That's what Saul should have done, but he didn't. And he kept on making the same mistake because he didn't have genuine repentance. Sure, he felt bad about his actions, but that's not the same thing as repenting from those actions. So let us pursue this kind of repentance. The second thing that I think is important for us to look at is at the end of 2 Corinthians in chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. We started off the message by talking about tests academic tests, stress tests, spiritual tests. And here we are told in 2 Corinthians 13 5 to test ourselves. To examine ourselves. Notice what Paul says Examine yourselves. This is a command from Scripture. To see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? See, the Corinthians had had so many problems and had fallen into so much sin and needed so much correction that Paul says, you guys really need to look at yourselves. You guys really need to test yourself and see whether or not Christ is in you. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. When you're born again, this is a life-changing experience. Paul says that those who are truly in Christ have died, it's like they've been crucified with Christ to the world, its values, its beliefs, its way of living, and that we've been resurrected, given this new life of Christ living in us and through us. And that's the test for whether or not you're a Christian. It's not like some Christians have supposed, whether or not you've spoken in tongues. It's not, can you deliver wonderful Bible messages from the pulpit? None of those things are the test of whether or not you are a Christian. The test of whether or not you are a Christian is, does Christ live in you? His values, his beliefs, his character, his goals, his dreams, his ambitions. If that is at the core of your being, then when it comes down to it, what you really want is what Christ wants. If that's who you are, then you are in the faith. You are born again. But if you find out that when it actually comes down to it, when I have to choose between following the world and following God, I choose to go along with the world. When it comes to whether or not I should sacrifice my life to serve God or whether or not I should save my life in this world, I choose to save my life in this world. That's a sign that you are not a Christian that Christ is not in you. Now, I haven't been asked to be a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ yet. If I ever am asked to give my life as a Christian, it will not make me a Christian. It will show whether or not I am a Christian. The test doesn't make you something. It just shows what you are. And so you're going to be tested. God's going to allow these tests in your life. And look at them. Do I respond with the heart of Christ, with the heart of genuine repentance, or do I respond like Saul, a man who fears man, a man who is fleshly, a man who's just concerned about my loss of honor, my loss of place, my loss of privilege, instead of genuinely being concerned about what does God think of me and what is my relationship with God like? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, none of us can make ourselves a Christian We can't cause ourselves to be born again. We can't create within us a new heart, a new spirit, a new mind that is like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. This goes far beyond any human ability, especially those of of sinners. We confess to you, Father, that we are sinners, that we have disobeyed you, that we have broken your commandments, that we are worthy of your punishment, which you have revealed to be death. And so, Lord God, this morning we lift high the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remind ourselves as a congregation, as an individual, that Jesus Christ is the one who has died in our place so that we might live. We were no better than the Amalekites. We're no better than anyone in this world who is a secularist or a humanist. And it's not because of who we are that we are saved, but it's because of who Jesus Christ is. And because of your work in us to to open the eyes of the blind and to give life where there was none before. To bring us out of the tomb into a life of walking with you, loving you, serving you, and fearing you. Father, we don't know what tests yet lie ahead for each one of us to reveal what is in our heart of hearts. But we do welcome the test. We do rejoice in our trials knowing that they produce endurance and perseverance, knowing that they reveal areas where we are weak and where we need to grow. And that is our desire. That is our heart's cry as your children, that we want to grow. We want to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we invite you, Father, to test us and to reveal to us where we are falling short and where we need repentance and where we need to change so that we may not become blind to our own faults. We may not become self-righteous. We may not become fools, but that we may become more and more like the perfect human being, your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray this prayer. Amen.